Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast. Today I had a really fun discussion with Dr. Kristen O'Brien, who practices in North Carolina. And one of the things that I really thought about, um, she articulated very well, is Kristen is a really hard worker. She wears a lot of hats. She uh, is in private practice. She works with the Vision Source Next program. She works with eye care advisors to help cold start practices. And I asked her, what motivates her and how does she wear so many different hats? And uh, she articulated the point really well uh, in a way that really resonated with me is that she feels like her hobby is optometry and is business development in optometry. And, um, and so it never really seems like work for her. When people ask her, how does she find the time to do all these different things? It's, it's because her leisure time in her mind, and, and I, I think this is exactly how I feel sometimes, is that her leisure time is spent with, and her hobbies are spent in optometry. And she feels like that's that's where what she loves to do. So it was pretty cool the way she articulated it. I, I, um, I you'll hear that on the podcast, and um, and we talked a lot about a lot of other things in terms of her development, her struggles, her relentlessness uh, of not of of having odds against her uh, in terms of the profession, and how she was able to overcome those odds are pretty striking. And I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. So with that, please support those who support us. Make sure you give us a five-star review. And also, it's very helpful if you uh, provide any comments in the review section and enjoy the podcast. Is everybody that you're talking to, are they mainly, um, are they usually students right out of school or are there people that they're usually younger generally four to five years out of school or upwards of 10 but the majority of them are all on the younger side of mm -hmm. their careers probably went when in more of them went into you know a lens crafters or a pearl model or a walmart um or an, a, a, an associate position that didn't work out as far as partnering or, or pages when you see that happening, um, are you like what? What are the reasons they're getting out of of that model? The majority of the reasons why they're getting out of that model is because they're they're not achieving the goals that they thought that they set out for. A lot of them thought that they'd do commercial as a, a way into private practice, and then you get kind of stuck in the commercial setting. Um, you you've got a mortgage, you've got a car payment, you've got maybe 2.3 kids and you, you you know are, are enjoying the lifestyle that being able to leave work at work and the higher income right off the bat. But then at about that magic four to seven years is when people start going, why am I going to work? And who am I doing this for? And I'm not doing it for me anymore and why not? Um, and those who are in a private practice setting as an associate are having a harder and harder time um, buying into practices because you know, private equity has a large valuation, so doctors are finding it less and less valuable to sell to their associate who's been helping them grow their practice over years. Um, and so people are getting fed up and saying, well, you know what, I can do this on my own, and that's where I care. Yeah, it's so, um, you know, you're, you're kind of talking about the, the opposite side of what we, I've been spending a couple of weeks now talk, having conversations with people. Really, it's probably over the last few months because private equity is so... Um, people hear about it so much and you know I I've I've had encounters now with people that um, I have a lot of 
I, I believe they have a lot of passion for private practice. And then there's this dichotomy with, um, I know there's these people that have had, you know, they're planning on selling to their associate at, you know, a standard rate. And then here comes in private equity that's going to offer them twice, literally twice what they could get from, from selling to their associate. And I can't blame them for making that decision. But then I think if you really do care about, so I'm a, if I'm a different place in my practice, right? So I'm still, I'm still young enough to be like, I want, I want, I believe private practice is the way that's best to take care of patients. It puts us right in the middle of the exact decisions that need to be made for the patient and with the patient. And, um, and so I'm still altruistic enough. I'm not at the end of my career looking to offload my practice for a bunch of money. And, but uh, I think, man, if, if you really believe in private practice, if you really believe that's the best thing for the patient, then you got to figure out a way to make those younger docs be able to afford your practice. Now, it's hard you coming in with a, a two times difference. I get that. But man, there's got to be a way. And, and so you're kind of seeing this whole other side that I was thinking was happening, but not even actually thinking that it was causing people to actually buy their buy or build new practices. Mm -hmm. What I was actually thinking more of is that it was just preventing people from entering into the market. So, um, so that's interesting that, uh, that you guys have worked with a hundred, uh, hundred offices, new cold starts. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and so, uh, so tell me your story a little bit more about, um, about, you know, your history with, kind of, I'll call it the private practice club, but that's not, I know that's not the, the accurate term. And then, you know, tell me your journey yeah. uh, into what you're doing now. So um, my first year in optometry school, I actually ended up failing my first year and I failed one course um, by 0.02%. And so at the Michigan College of Optometry, that means you repeat your entire year versus just one class. Um, and so I decided that if I was going to repeat my first year, I was going to do it different. And we didn't have a private practice club, so I founded one. So the Michigan Optometric Student Private Practice Association, or MOSPA, um, was kind of my, my baby. And what my was this? this would have been in 20, ooh, uh, 2009. Um, 2009. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, so I, I started the Michigan Optometric Student Private Practice Association, and um, the year that I founded that club, VSP and Vision Source bonded together and sponsored the presidents of the private practice clubs. There were only 17 schools at that point in time, and only 10 of them had clubs that were sort of up and running. Um, so they actually were able to identify some leaders at four other schools and hosted those uh, 14 students at the Vision Source Exchange in uh, Houston. Um, that was the 20th anniversary year. Um, so I got to experience what an exchange was like as a first year, well, it's my second first year <laughs> in optometry, my redo year in optometry school. And it was really unique because, um, you know, we were, we were in the general session it's unlike any other conference that you totally. would ever go to as yeah. a student. Um, at that point, I had only ever been to AOA, hadn't been to any other conference. And I mean, it is it is just like a kid in a candy shop and you go, this is what I want to be when I grow up yeah. type of a feeling. Um, and so we attended the general session each morning. And then in the afternoon, we broke out and we had 
um, doctors like Amir Kushnevis and Mike's Roth- Mike Rothschild and Ted McElroy come in and do leadership seminars with us about how do you develop a mission, how do you develop um, core values, and kind of teaching us how to be leaders at our school to better cultivate the clubs that we had at the optometry school level. And that ended up turning into what has become the Student Optometric Leadership Network, which is the parent organization to all of the private practice clubs at the optometry schools. There's now 24 optometry schools, and all of them have thriving private practice clubs. And so every year, the president, outgoing president and incoming president of every private practice club comes to the Solution Conference, which is a leadership seminar um, that Vision Source uh, hosted for several years, and it was off-site for a little while, and Vision Source hosted it two years ago. Most recently, it's always held in June. Most recently, it was in Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, but essentially, it's... 50 of the most passionate private practice students um, that are all getting introductions into um, business management, private practice, um, hiring, um, uh, getting an, you know, a, a kind of a Cliff Notes version of what is private equity, what does the future of optometry look like. And so they're able to go back to their schools and either schedule better quality speakers because they also gain resources to bring back to their schools. Um, but they're also more educated so they can ask the preemptive questions um, to the speakers of their private practice clubs to then better their, uh, their uh, other colleagues. It's interesting because so I, in, in my work, like working with students, um, I've noticed that they tend to uh, all really want private practice. I mean, I, I think that's really still very true. I, I don't think many people go in. I'm not saying it's wrong. You can practice wherever you want to practice. And I think you can have the type of practice you want to have probably in, in any setting, but it is very challenging in a lot of settings to, to do that. Um, and, but it's interesting to me that there's two things. First, why there wouldn't be every single student a member, almost every single student a member of those clubs, and, and they're kind of bursting down the door. And two, the the point that you just made about asking better questions. And I always, one of the reasons that I started doing this was that um, just, I, I get to learn a lot about, you know, what other people are doing. And then it just makes me ask better questions because I know more about what's going on. Mm-hmm. So there's so much to that, that you're talking about, that I think it's lost on people of just, you know, just saying yes to stuff or just, you know, you don't have to be like the, the president of whatever, but just like taking an active interest in it. So my sense is that there's still a lot of students that want to do that, but why wouldn't everybody, why wouldn't all the students just want to be involved at, at even a smaller level, you know, a little bit of a level? What do you think? You're, you're absolutely correct. The short answer is because they don't think that they can. Hmm. So if you ask, when I go to all the optometry schools and I speak to their private practice clubs, which a large majority of their patient, of their student population is a member of their private practice club, notoriously almost all of the first year hands go up when I say who wants to be hmm. in private practice. Um, but you're absolutely correct. By the time they get to fourth year, how many of them actually go into private practice is staggeringly small. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be, to be perfectly frank, companies will come in and tell the students, you are not good enough mm. to work in private practice when you graduate optometry school. I was at a conference Whoa. in Puerto Rico. Not good enough? No, you are not good enough. I, I, after I got up and gave an inspirational hour-long presentation about how I opened up cold right out of optometry school and if I can do it and you know I had a hard time with boards and I had a hard time passing my first year in optometry school if I can do it then you can do it too and the speaker right after me representing a large group 
said just Frank, like that's good for her, but the majority of you are not good enough to be in private practice when you graduate. So what you need to do is you need to come and work for me at our at our locations, learn under us, make your mistakes on our dime. Mm-hmm. And then if you still want to go out and do private practice, mm-hmm. then you can later. But we're going to pay you more. You're going to be happier with us. And you're not good enough yet. Mm-hmm. You need extra training. And that just infuriated me. And that was when I started. I wrote Glenn Ellisor um, a letter because Vision Source Next and the Mentor mm-hmm. D program had not yet been created. And um, Vision Source had kind of pulled back a little bit on student sponsorship. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on within Vision Source. It was our massive growth years. Right. And so um, funds were, were allocated elsewhere. And I wrote Glenn Ellisor a, a letter and just said, listen, I wouldn't be where I am today and my successful practice and being able to give back to the students if it weren't for Vision Source and all the resources that I had. And I, I think it's critical that Vision Source continued to, um, you know, make this a, a important initiative um, because if not students aren't going to know that that they are good enough and that it is possible for them yeah so then i mean it, there's just so much there's so much in that and you wonder how how often that occurs because you know if you see, if you hear the same thing over and over and over again even if it's not true you start to believe it mm-hmm. and you know you already already have doubts because you've got this huge student debt and um, you know, you're, for whatever reason, you know, you, you, you may, um, you may have been at different events and then you kind of get pushed aside as a student. Cause I see that. I actually think there's a big mistake that is made uh, a lot of times from a legislative standpoint, from an SGRC standpoint, I will see states that I've actually heard this like, well, come on along with us student and, um, but just stand over there and just learn how, learn how it works. And that is not the experience I had. So George Foster, you know, kind of basically like took us in and showed us this is this is how you can do this. This is how you can be involved. And then he basically just like said, like, you look, you're you're talking to these guys. You know, you talk to them. They want to hear your story. And um, and then the same thing, you know, I, I was a fourth year student, the Nebraska Optometric Association. We had leaders in that uh, organization that um, that said, look, Chris, we value your opinion. And if you're willing to do the work, we're willing to have you on different committees to help guide where we're going to go in the future. And, um, and like that does a lot of things. It definitely binds people to those organizations, but it also empowers them to be able to say, look, you can make mistakes and you can make them on your dime and you can make them on, you know, we, we trust you enough to say, let's, let's figure it out. If you make a mistake, we'll figure it out, you know? And, um, so if I didn't have those opportunities, I can completely see why people would just be like, well, I'll just do whatever. I'll work for whoever. Um, and so that's troubling, really troubling. It's very troubling. And that's why we're seeing a mass exodus, not a mass exodus, but a larger than usual um, exodus of people in commercial or in associate positions that did end up in private practice, but unsuccessfully starting their own private practice. Yeah. So then how do we bridge the gap? So that's kind of where you, you came in. So you're, there's not many people that I think, man, they do a lot of stuff. Um, but you're one of those people that I think, yeah, you you know, Kristen is, she's a, you know, she's a hustler. Like, like, I feel (laughs) like what I mean by that is like, I mean that in all the good ways. Like, um, like when people ask me like, what, you know, how do you find all the energy to do different things? I say, I hustle, you know, you got to hustle. 
And, um, and that's one of the things I really like about our profession in general is that we're scrappy. I don't think we take things for granted. I think we, I don't think we take our ability to care for patients the way we do for granted. I mean, and that makes us more excellent. Um, but having said that, that's, that's why, why, when I watch kind of from afar, I see, oh, well, Kristen's doing this and Kristen's doing that. And uh, so I really like that hustle. I love to see that. So congratulations. Thank Thank you for doing it. Um, Very kind. Tell me about uh, what's driving you and how you're managing the different hats that you're wearing. Because there's because they're actually pretty significant hats. They are. Um, what's funny is when people ask me what my hobbies are, all my hobbies end up correlating back to what I do for a living. Amen. Um, so while some people find that dull, yep. <laughs> I find it very easy to go to work um, because it's what I enjoy. So... Um, from a patient care standpoint, I, I mean, I had my cold start private practice for six years. Um, and then, uh, life moved my husband and I from Denver to Charlotte, North mm. Carolina. I didn't so. know about that. So, so you, yeah. so I knew that you had a practice in Denver and all of a sudden I was talking to Amir yep. and I'm like, well, Kristen's with you now. So what's that story? So, um, I right out of optometry school had an amazing opportunity to partner with, uh, two vision source docs out of, uh, Western Kansas, and they essentially uh, funded the practice. Mm. And um, because I was still a student, yeah, when Mark we were, and Mark and Seth, yep. Mark Walmire, Seth Thibault, um, and they they found me because I was connected. And everywhere I went, I told mm. people I want to practice in Colorado. Um, and so Kelly Kirksick and Bill Breen both independently recommended me to them. Um, because they had met me as a student at the Vision Source Exchanges, um, and I was so vocal about where I wanted to practice and to get out of Michigan. No offense to Michigan, no. my family's still there, but wasn't quite right for me. I need a little bit more sunshine and a little bit less snow. You get that with Denver, for you sure. You do, for sure. So moved out there, had the opportunity. I mean, I, I was hiring people before I had even finished optometry school. Hmm. Um, we had to hire into doc part-time um, because I hadn't didn't even have my license yet. So... Um, <laughs> I was thrust into private practice um, with also with amazing mentors, so I didn't have to do it alone. Um, and I learned some things the hard way, but um, other things, you know, I'd been given excellent advice, which is one of the reasons why I love uh, working with eye care advisors so much, helping other people start cold because um, I, I've done it and I've done it with mentors and and um, really enjoyed it. So six years in, um, you know, we, my husband and I just decided that Colorado wasn't quite where we wanted to Mm. raise our family. Um, And I had never really, um, and my husband also wasn't crazy about the position that he was in with his company. He wanted to take a demotion, a little bit less Mm. human resources aspect of things. Um, And, you know, I had always just thought, well, he can, he can find another job in his field. And, you know, this is where, this is where home is. And maybe we just need to live in a different neighborhood or a different part of the city or something like that. Um, it had never crossed my mind that I would sell my practice before I was ready to stop seeing patients. Yeah. Um, but I was sitting with Amir at the Student Optometric Leadership Network Conference at the uh, Vision Source Member Center in Kingwood. And Amir told me about his amazing opportunity to um, join Vision Source on a higher level and that that was going to take him away from the practice. And I said, how are you going to handle that? And he goes, well, I, I need you. I need mm. somebody like you. And I, and I just looked at him and I was like, well, what if you could have me? Mm. What, 
what if, and he was like, no, I'm being serious. Like I need somebody that has experience running a practice. I don't just need another associate. And I said, no, I'm being serious too. And he goes, well, what's Chris, my husband's name's yeah. Chris. What's Chris going to say about that? So I texted my husband and said, hey, what do you feel about, th- what do you think about moving to Charlotte? <laughs> um, and his response was a screenshot of a, a house listing. So mm. um, he was cool. on board. He was able to transfer with his company. And um, that was in June that we started thinking about it. We took a trip to Charlotte in July, said, yep, this is, this is where we could see ourselves long term. And... Um, we sold the practice January 1. So all the doctors who, this is where private equity for me is really personal because all the doctors who say, I can't sell my practice, I really truly believe if you were spending the time grooming your practice for sale in advance, um, as well as making sure that your your practice is always continuing to grow versus decline, um, that you can absolutely sell your practice. I mean, I, I literally texted 10 different people that I thought might be interested had an evaluation done, appraisal done, and had my practice sold. And I had three three bidders. Yeah. Um, and I got above what our office was valued at. Now, we could have gone private equity, but um, I, don't, I don't care how much more they would have paid me. It would have been, wouldn't have been worth it yeah. for me. Yeah. The, so I think there's a couple things to unpack in that. I think the first thing is that, you know, what you just said about, um, about the ongoing – Really, I think practices that are going to sell quickly are practices that people aren't just like, I'm ready to sell. It's like you're constantly growing the practice. You're constantly evaluating how can you do things better? How can you improve things? Um, and and by doing that, you have a practice that's very desirable because you're incorporating new new things all the time, new ways to better manage patients. Obviously, just vision source stuff we talk about all the time, new technologies, new treatments, you know, et cetera. And so when you do that, it's it's gonna be. I mean, there's no student that wants that walks into. I, I have no illusions. This is not arrogant. This actually is just because my dad built a great practice, and I was fortunate enough to learn from him. But I, I don't think there's any student that walks into our practice that wouldn't say, "I would love to practice here," mm-hmm. I, and and doesn't walk into the practice and be like, oh, "This thing is, is old, and I'm gonna have to put some money into it." And I mean, there's I just have no illusion that that's the case. Yep. And they might not want to practice with me, but, but, but like we've, we've built the practice that we want to build. And, and when we do that collectively, right, as a whole, as, as providers, then we wind up um, building a practice that other people want. And so, um, so that I think is really interesting when we think about vision source next and practice transitions and those sorts of things. Um, But then the, uh, so, so so then that transitions you from Colorado selling your practice. Now you're in practice with Amir in, in Charlotte. Yep. And you're wearing, now you're also wearing the hat of an administrator. Yes. And um, so I, I like what you said about I, what are my hobbies? These are my hobbies. Like, like I, that's how I feel. You know, I, I, I grew up, you know, with, with the profession. I grew up learning about the profession. And when I think about, well, what would be fun right outside of playing with my kids and and getting up really early to run, it's, Okay, well, how can how can I work to to help you know do whatever this other thing is, whether it's legislative issues? So I I love that. I think um, I love that when I encounter people that the reason they're working so hard is not is because they don't really look at it like work. It's what they would prefer to do. So then how do you manage then the the eye care hat and the administrator hat and the vision source next hat? How have you been able to do that? 
Um, so I've gone down, I, when I was in Denver, I was really only seeing patients one day a week um, and managing the practice. And I had an associate doc full on full time, mm-hmm. um, which was also critical in the sale because it was just one less doctor day right. um, with me gone. Um, and so now um, in Charlotte, I'm seeing patients two to three days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rest of the time is flexible. So if I have something going on, I arranged my, you know, uh, vision source stuff around it. Um, I do travel a lot to the private practice clubs, but all of that can be kind of arranged around my patient care schedule. Um, and uh, just on on Tuesday, um, took a trip with our uh, Terrence Andrews, our, our uh, uh, PPD uh, in the area, and went to five of our member offices and just co-traveled with him um, just to say hi to everybody and, and get a better feel for the area. And um, I had a blast. It was yeah. awesome seeing um, putting putting a practiced uh, face or look to the doctor um, that's going to help me be a, a better administrator as yeah. well. Um, so one of the nice things about Eye Care Advisors too is that a lot of our clients are doctors who see patients from eight to five, and they need the mo- most communication in the evenings. So um, it's not uncommon for me to be on the phone with clients at eight or nine or ten o'clock at night. Um, but I also can arrange that around my schedule. So um, it's it's very flexible, which is one of the things that intrigued me about optometry um, when I was younger is mm-hmm. that you could make it what you wanted it, and yep. it was very um, family-friendly. Yep. I think that's so true. I think you can um, – I, I really believe that you can do whatever you want to do in the profession, and you can wind up having any type of practice that you want to have um, – you know, whether that's, so for me, you know, I, I love to, to see patients. So when I'm not doing this, um, you know, when I'm not at speaking at a conference or something like that, I'll, um, I'm seeing patients Monday through Thursday and I think it keeps me sharp, but I also really like to, to do the research and to study and, um, and to prepare lectures and those sorts of things, because I think it gives me something else to focus on. That's not, cause I could see how people, I mean, that's where, that's where I think you get stuck is, I can understand why people 15 years in and all they've ever done are burnt out. Yep. Mm-hmm. I can totally see that. Um, so the, the guys I always look up to, like, like one of my big mentors, a guy named David Crockwell. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. David, but, um, you know, David is a clinician's clinician, right? He's, he's a solid clinician. Um, and he practices full scope optometry, but he also has these other passions for the profession that, allows him to focus efforts on this next thing and this next thing. So I think it kind of re-energizes. I, I get the sense that it sort of re-energizes. My dad's the same way is that, you know, he, um, he has these other areas where he can kind of let his mind maybe a wander a little bit, um, in a good way. Right. And then it allows you to refocus and not get burnt out in clinical care. So I, I love to see patients. I, I want that to be the case for a long time, but I think, um, it's not by accident that people like you can um, can do a lot of different things. It's it's I think it's almost like a purposeful um, venture into those other things. And unless you do that, unless you try to develop the skills to do that, uh, you'll never do it. And then you'll just you know you just be kind of turning your wheels. And and if you love it, great. That's that's all you have to do. But if you don't love it, you got to find something else that can recharge your batteries. Otherwise, you're you're going to be in a death spiral. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And you know what I love to tell people who say, you know, how do you do it? How do you do it all? Mm-hmm. Um, is you know, I, 
I love seeing patients, but what I love least about my profession is seeing patients. Mm, and that sounds silly, right? You went to school for how many years or how many thousands of dollars in debt? Um, and what you like least is mm. seeing patients, but I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something that if you find yourself refracting and you're thinking about other things, um, you're not challenging yourself anymore, right? So um, I love the fact that our profession can be so diversified. Yeah. Yeah. It keeps me going for sure. So then um, let's let's kind of move into what would you tell? So when you're selling your practice, I want to get into this a little bit because I think uh, I think that's, you know, I think people are scared of private equity. They're scared of it if they think it's going to consume the doctors around them and then not, you know, and then they don't sell, which I think gives them a pause or want to sell, right? They might say, I don't know if I want to keep practicing on my own, so I better sell. That's, that's I think, a, a thought that makes people scared. And I was having, a, I had a meeting today and, and one of the things that somebody brought up in that meeting was that um, people make decisions based on fear. Absolutely. Fear is a big motivator. And, and I hate that. Like, I actually, I believe it. I think it's true. I, I don't believe it's true for me in general. Um, but, and that doesn't make me a good person or a bad person or any sort of person. It's just, um, I've just never been motivated by fear in general, I don't think. But this idea that fear is motivating people to sell practices when they may not want to be out or to not. So how do you, uh, if I was going to approach you and say, look, I'm ready to be done, or what would be your advice to me? Um, And then what would be your advice to somebody that is looking at purchasing a practice or opening a cold start, but they're kind of worried about that? What What would you think? So Vision Source Next is the program to answer all of those um, scenarios. So to give you a little bit of a rundown of what Vision Source Next is, so it helps in every facet of of being involved in private practice from students to selling. So if you're a student, you can be a member of of Vision Source Next and find mentors, um, connect with people who are are experts in the fields that you're interested in learning more about. Um, If you are a new grad, you can... um, find opportunities to become an associate in a private practice, to cold start, to buy a practice. Um, and if you are currently an owner and you're looking to transition out, depending on where you are in that phase will determine how you want to use Vision Source Next. So you can use Vision Source Next to sell your practice to a younger doc who is looking to buy. Or if you've got a couple of years, you can groom an associate doctor towards the buy-in process. And Vision Source Next has resources to help you with that transition. Um, so I would say always try and plan ahead versus mm-hmm. wishing you had done something years in the past. And I think um, it's human nature to want to be included, which is why the, I think the private equity is gaining so much, um, so much traction um, with doctors who feel like, I should have sold a year ago and I can't find anybody to buy and it's too late for me to um, to do any changes to my practice because I want to be done tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those doctors, maybe private equity is a good mm-hmm. opportunity. Um, that being said, if you want to be done and you don't want to stay on board, a lot of the models with private equity require the doctor to stay on board for a little yeah. while and it ends up being less lucrative if you don't stay on board. Um, so that's when I would challenge a doctor to really look at the Vision Source Next program. Um, or if you're not a member of Vision Source, then connect with your alma mater, connect with other um, optometry schools, and look for new grads. Connect with your state association, put list, ads and lists out, um, and make sure to tell people that you're ready to sell a practice because word of mouth is how a lot of these transactions end up taking place. 
Yeah, I think people are worried that um, that if they tell too many people, then somebody's going to come open right across the street right. from them. Is there any validity to that in your experience? I would not advise a cold start private practice to open right across the street of a mm. thriving of a thriving private practice. Mm. Um, if you're if you've let your practice go for the last ten years and it's declining, then yeah, that's a great business move. Yeah. So it's really all about the owner doc and how you've you've handled your private practice and and scheduled your exit strategy. Um, I, I really think that around age 50, if you want to retire before you're 60, 65, then you really need to start planning for your retirement, even though it might seem premature. Mm-hmm. Um, because the first associate that you hire might not be the right fit and uh, you might not see eye to eye. But I will say that those partnerships that I've seen work are the partnerships that have a very set plan as to how a partnership is to be worked out. Not dangling a carrot of, oh, mm. well, after a couple of years, yeah. if you like the place, then then we could discuss buy-in versus, hey, you're going to work for me for one year. At the nine-month mark, if we're all happy, then let's start talking about valuation, practice purchase price, so that by year end of your first-year contract, you're buying in in some manner. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different ways that you can get creative with buy-ins. Yep. It doesn't have to be a traditional bank loan. Now, there, there's a lot of different ways that bank loans can go, especially for newer grants who have a ton of student loan debt. Um, if the practice isn't cash flowing, then they're not going to be able to get right. a, a loan. And if they didn't handle their personal finances throughout school and their first years in their career, then they're not going to be able to get a loan. That being said, you can always sell their finance it too. Um, and or partial do, do partial a little bit of both what if so let's say the scenario of like what if somebody just doesn't like at this point in their life they're, they're coming in they want private practice but they don't necessarily want to own a private practice what would you say to them how, how would a you perfect opportunity to work and mentor uh, a younger a younger individual um, I mean we have an associate doc who's full-time um, who might want ownership but She's not necessarily 100%. I definitely want ownership. And, um, you know, the type of compensation structures that you have for your associates, if you model them in in an ownership mentality, Mm, then you can actually mutually benefit and continue to grow the practice. Um, so, I mean, I, I would argue that, uh, it's, it's fan. I mean, I think a lot of doctors are looking for associates who don't necessarily want a piece of the pie, sure. um, but that are still motivated to continue to grow the practice and do what's best for their patients and the practice. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think that's, I think that's the key. And I think what's interesting, and you probably know this better than I, I do just because of the people that you're working with, but what I've learned over time is like, um, people are motivated by different stuff, you know, by different things. And so it's easy for me to ascribe motivations to everybody that motivate me, the same things that motivate me. And so, um, so I'm learning slowly that, that, uh, maybe we need to figure out different ways for people to, um, you know, different, uh, mechanisms for them to be motivated. But I do think motivation is important. I think they should be like, uh, moving towards something that is rewarding for them, whether Absolutely. it's, you know, whatever that thing is or whatever. And when I say thing, I don't mean like stuff. I mean, just like if it's more time with their family, if it's more freedom, if it's, you know, financial security, whatever that is, um, I think they should, they should figure out how to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as practice owners, um, if you have people that aren't necessarily ready for 
practice ownership, then you can find help them find ways to achieve what they are ready for and what they and the, what they want. So I think there's kind of this. Um, I think your point about the nine months is uh, is important. I think it's important to check back w- in with people, have constant communication within those relationships. Reviews is, I mean, important for every member of your team, um, not just your re- non-OD staff, but also your your OD staff. Um, and the personality tests, you know, mm. some people say that they're overrated. I think that they're critical. Um, and making sure that you're having open dialogue about, like, like you said, what does motivate you. And you can become very creative with compensation packages and how you make that happen. Um, I know several of my friends, if they can have three weeks off, hmm. they're willing to work 12-hour days, Saturdays, hmm. late evenings, early mornings, um, just so that they can have that consecutive time off. Mm-hmm. Um, I know other of my friends, um, you know, they really want to champion a program. They want to be in charge of the practices, myopia management, or their dry eye center, or they they just want to have something that they can um, develop and be proud of. Um, and, and others, it is about you know the monetary goal mm-hmm. and having a, a bonus structure in place that rewards the the OD as well as as the practice. Um, at, I, I think that that's critical in making sure that that we're keeping our colleagues because you know while there are employees there are colleagues sure yeah that's right and we need to think of them that way yeah totally I, and, and I yeah so I think um, I think that's I think that's key um, I think you have to you have to find what what is individual about that person and um, not assume that they're going to be motivated by the same things you're motivated by and also you know, they like you said they may not want practice ownership right now they they honestly may want to come in see patients and then go and not have to to worry about the other stuff mm-hmm. um and that's okay you know not everybody's built for that and i think but i still think that they still want private practice because it still affords them the ability to to do a whole lot have a whole lot of freedom within what they're doing uh and how they're managing patients absolutely so um the the point that you made about how you found the location, the original location, I think I've made this point to students years after year after year. And I always say, look, if, if you come, and I don't think people should just come when they're fourth year students to state association meetings. That's a mistake. Cause you're, because then you become like, you're, you're totally invisible. I mean, yeah, okay. I, we'll see you. We'll take you under our wing. We'll help you out. Um, we'll, we'll, pay some attention to you and we'll try to get you plugged in. But I always say, and I said this when I was a student, if you're going to go to every single state association meeting of the state that you want to go to, you make it a point first year, second year, third year, then pretty soon everybody that's, that's thinking about bringing somebody in says, I recognize Kristen. Mm-hmm. She's been around, she gets it. And, and they feel comfortable with you. Yep. That's, I think, a I, I, you know, it happened a lot in Oklahoma when I was in school. You know, we were always, we had school off for the meetings. We were expected to be there. So that made it easier. But like in states that don't have schools, I think that it's a challenge. Um, but if I were going to give anybody any advice, it's be present at those meetings and be engaged in those meetings and don't be a wallflower, mm-hmm. you know, start conversations, find mentors there. Yep. Um, and and then w- even if you're not going to find somebody that you want to go into practice with, talk to somebody. Like don't just don't just say I'm going to open a sh- I'm going to hang a shingle on a door in this one location and then here I am. Like 
talk to people who've done it before and who who know the area that you're going into and um, that you trust because you've developed those relationships over the years. I think it's a big mistake, and, and I always makes me um, I'm always amazed when I see that that people are coming in and it is their fourth year, and now it's like here I am, and I, I mean I, it's great. Welcome to welcome to our profession. That's that I'm always, but like you're not going to find a job. Where that have you way. been the last yeah, three years? You're exactly. just not. What I like to tell students when I speak to them is that doctors are way more afraid to talk to you than you should be to talk to them because they're not in your shoes. They don't know what to ask you. Like, hey, how was your biology exam yeah. last week? Like, yeah. they don't know yeah. what to talk We're to you about. We're far removed. Exactly. So there's so many questions that you can ask them that are so generic that you could ask any OD and get a ton of information. And I always tell them, too, to reach out. Um, you know, so you mentioned that the states that don't have schools, um, so Colorado, for example, doesn't have a school, but they have a student membership that's free to the state mm -hmm. association. And if you're a member of that state association, um, part of the Young Professionals Club um, in Colorado, we send care packages to all the third years before mm. they take boards. We handwrite them notes, give them our cell phone numbers and our email addresses, reach out to us, how you doing? Let us know what you're looking for. We welcome you to come to Colorado. And the number of people who actually reached back out are few and far between. But those who did, guess what? We helped them get yep. a job and yep. we helped them find the right partner or the right opportunity for them. And so I always tell my the students that I, that I speak to, you know, the more that you reach out, the more that you just say thank you, the mm -hmm. more you say, hey, I learned this when you came and spoke to me, um, you make an impact. Yep. And um, doctors don't take time out of out of their day to come and talk to you just because they want to make a difference they want to make an impact they want to help you be better and by acknowledging that you're going to be able to help bridge the gap and give yourself more connections and more networking so that when you are a fourth year you go back to that email thread and say hey dr wolf i remember when you came and spoke to my school thank you so much i'm actually a fourth year now um, looking for opportunities in Colorado. Do you know any docs in that yep. area that you could refer me to? Sure would appreciate it. And I mean, it, that goes so far. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I, so in this culture that I think we've had, I've had a couple conversations over the last few months also about, um, about the social media. And I don't claim to be an expert on social media and what it does to our culture, but I think for our profession, uh, this, it's very interesting to me um, what people will put on social media out for thousands of people they don't know, they don't actually know, and the fact that they won't take the time to actually bring it up to somebody that they do know. So we've gotten to this way of like, I trust this, this web of people that I don't really know um, to give me advice. And, um, and that then it starts detracting from like, how do we actually use that advice in a real way? And, um, so I think it's going to be cyclical. I think people are going to have to come back. I'm not saying that social media is a fad or I mean, it's, obviously it's like important, but, um, but from a standpoint, it's just, a, it's, it's interesting how people are interacting now and where they're getting advice from. And so like everybody wants to say like, okay, look at this picture. What's the diagnosis? It's like, well, when we have a conversation about that patient, you and I, because we know each other and we trust each other's judgment, and I'm bringing you the full case, and you can ask me other follow-up questions, et cetera, et cetera, we get a way better, bigger, better picture of where that patient's going. And that same thing is true when we're buying practices or deciding on what we're going to do or who we're going to hire. 
if we know who those people are, if we've interacted with them before. And I think that's really the lifeblood of our profession. And it's, it's a challenge when you see some of that going away or when you're like, all you guys got to do is show up, just mm-hmm. show up. And you're saying it's such a small portion that will actually respond. It's, it's like, man, you don't, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I truly believe deep down that if you're just showing up um, in most of those scenarios, you'll have the job you want to have or you'll be able to buy the practice you want to buy. Um, you won't be stuck trying to piecemeal stuff together or you won't feel like you have to piecemeal stuff together. You might, but it's your stuff. It's what you get to dictate. Yep. Um, so I hope that that changed. I hope what you all are doing with Vision Source Next and making some of those connections. So if you're a Vision Source member right now, what do you do as a doctor that is looking for that or maybe not even thinks they're looking for it? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm able to be found? Yeah, you need to go on to Insight and there's two different profiles that you need to update. So one is going to be your personal doctor profile. It's going to be in the upper right-hand corner. And um, that that profile will allow you to um, write a short bio about yourself, what year did you graduate, optometry school did you go to. Um, and then your practice profile, you can check mark, hey, I'm willing to be a mentor, I'm looking for an associate, I'm looking to sell. Um, and and that will those two profiles together will um, make you visible to any student who's registered to Vision Source Next, and they can search you geographically, they can search you by interest, um, they can search you by opportunity, and it's kind of more of a LinkedIn-style mm-hmm. um, type look to it. Mm-hmm. And they can reach out directly to you, and it'll go um, go to your email that's linked with your your personal profile on Insight. Awesome, awesome. Well, Kristen, thanks for sitting down. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we missed that I that um, that you think would be really helpful to people listening? You know, I, I just say keep keep knowing that private practice is alive and thriving, and um, don't be discouraged by hearing that students aren't interested in private practice anymore because they absolutely still are. And I look forward to continuing to work with our colleagues to help keep opportunities for our next generation of optometrists alive. And thank you very much for. Awesome. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Chris.